You're listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It's not just radio, it's community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Welcome to Speaking of the Arts on KOPN, an hour of news, views and interviews on the arts in mid-Missouri. My name is Diana Moxon. On today's show, we take a look at an extraordinary experimental school founded in 1933 in North Carolina that produced some of the 20th century's most forward-thinking artists and art creators, some of whose work will be featured in a special exhibit opening at Sega Browdis Gallery tonight. The gallery's curator, Hannah Reeves, will be joining me later in the show to talk about the influence of Black Mountain College and about the Sega Browdis exhibit. But before we get into mid-20th century experimentation, we start with a little early 21st century theatrical experimentation with a play within a play within a play. (laughs) Jane Martin's mad cat comedy Anton in Show Business opened at Stevens College Warehouse Theatre last night and I am delighted to welcome back to the show for the final time before she graduates and leaves town Winona Wiley, the Warehouse Theatre's business manager along with director Lauren Douglas. Artistic director. Artistic director, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Along with director Lauren Douglas for this current show and the upcoming artistic director for the Warehouse Theatre, Brooke Grinot. Welcome, ladies. Well, no, no, I must say I was remiss last time you were on the show in not congratulating you for the Honourable Mention Award that you received from the Kennedy Centre American College Theatre Festival in January. Thank you. Was that a huge surprise? Yes, yes, it was. It was um, for my work and a show that we did last year on the main stage when we were in Unafraid. I was the assistant director and dramaturge for that. So, yes, that was a lot of fun to go up to South Dakota in negative degree weather. Um, yes, but it was quite an honour. And that was for directing, an award for directing. That was actually for dramaturgy. 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 <laughs> Which is describing the background. Yeah. It's, setting the scene. Yeah, it's a, it's a little bit of, um, it, it's kind of like the researcher of the show for like a new work, uh, dramaturges and uh, dramaturgs and uh, playwrights work very close together on, you know, um, researching the historical time period of the piece or, you know, what, if, if the play is like about like an actual like event that happened, focusing on that. But a current already produced work, the dramaturg very much like works closely with the director on pulling any information that is helpful to the cast and also like doing some outreach with the community. I'd never heard dramaturg before I started researching yes. people for this show, so now it's, I know what a dramaturg is. It is unfortunately not a very often used position because it's expensive to hire another person, and so typically directors are also their own dramaturgs. Right. But it's always like really nice when you can have an extra person who's willing to do that for you. So Anton in show business, simultaneously a love letter and a poison pen letter to the American <laughs> theatre, to quote Variety magazine. It's about as meta as you can get, a play within a play, wrapped up in a play with all sorts of interjections that make the audience wonder which layer of meta they are actually in i saw it last night and there are loads of funny lines it's very very funny play so lauren i've bumped into you at the grocery store and while we're standing in line i say so what is the play about how do you summarize it as we (laughs) edge towards the checkout the best way to summarize anton and show business from my perspective as a director who has lived this play for a month, I would say that Anton in show business is a play that calls into question, you know, whether it's really over for the theater. 
uh, like one of the characters say in the show. And I would say that it is a play which talks about our offstage struggles as theater artists in a very objective way. That being said, it talks about offstage struggles that you might not be familiar with um, if you don't really do theater. And I'm not talking about how hard it is to be a stagehand to move uh, a chair from one side of the stage to another, or how hard it is to, to do a quick change backstage or things like that. It's w when the curtain comes down and the big lights on the marquee blink out at the end of the day, this play shows us that when you strike all of the flashy, fun parts of showbiz, what you are left with is a industry not unlike any other industry, which is built on the backs of, of women and people of color, an industry which exploits minority groups. And, and oftentimes we think that theater people are different than that. It's more inclusive. But I think you come to this show and you're lulled by the laughs, you're lulled by the comedy, and you learn that that's not true. So the Anton in the title of Anton in Show Business is Anton Chekhov. Yes. And it's kind of loosely based around the uh, Chekhov play, The Three Sisters. But do mm -hmm. you need to know anything about Chekhov's Three Sisters to appreciate the play's satire? No, you don't need to know anything about Russian literature. You don't need to know anything about theater at all. If this is the first play you've ever seen, you'd be perfectly fine walking in because the script is written so that anybody can understand. Although I will say, if you do know Chekhov, it's, it's way funnier <laughs> because you get all the inside jokes but but no you don't need to know anything about Chekhov or theater to to love this play so tell us about the three actresses we meet who play the three sisters Olga Irina and Masha excellent so uh, we have three sisters of course uh, within the realm of the three sisters but um, in Anton and show business there are three actresses who play the parts uh, firstly is Holly C. Aby, who is a famous television star and has been hired by the theater company to to play Irina so that she can get some classical theater credits on her resume so that one day maybe she'll work in the movies. And then secondly, we have Lizabeth Cartwright from Lavernia, Texas, who has given up her job as an elementary school teacher to pursue her dream of acting in the arts. And the other characters in the play see her as this hopelessly naive girl who doesn't really know what she's getting herself into. And lastly, we have Casey Mulgraw, who is the quote-unquote queen of off-off-Broadway, and she has just celebrated her 200th performance without ever being paid a salary. <laughs> um, and so it's these three women who not only are not only symbols of the three sisters within the play, if you know it, but also represent three different pillars of what it means to be an actress in the 21st century. So these three girls, they stay in their character roles all evening, but everybody else in the play plays multiple roles. Yes. So who, if you see a character in one, in one role at the beginning, when you see them later on in a slightly different outfit, they are a different person. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so there are multiple characters, but only a, a small cast, really, mm -hmm. what, six or seven people? Mm -hmm. Seven. So let's talk a little bit about the casting. You have Casey, who is the actress who plays Olga, the actress in The Three Sisters, and she's described in the cast notes as being 36 and tall and lean and plain. Then there's Lysabeth and there's Holly playing Masha, who's described as 30 and drop-dead gorgeous, who we additionally find out during the play has had 17 separate surgical procedures <laughs> to make her the complete natural beauty we see before us. So our casting decisions are minefield of potential insults. Like, oh yes, you're plain. You'll do. <laughs> <laughs> How do you cast a, a plain 
sane person. <laughs> I was uh, I was very, very fortunate that when people came in to audition for the play, they came in with an understanding of the roles that they wanted to play. And contrary to other auditions where people bring in monologues that aren't from the show, in the warehouse, a lot of the time, it's easier for us to see where people fit if we just give them material from the show and they bring in prepared versions of material that I'm already familiar with as a director. So... That being said, the actual, actually the, the actresses who played Liza Betts and Casey came in and auditioned with Liza Betts Casey scenes together because they both really loved the parts. So they pretty much told me what they wanted and they knocked their audition out of the park. And so I didn't have to break the news to anybody that they were playing, <laughs> fortunately. Uh, they just loved the script and the woman who, who's playing Casey right now um, really loved the part and she came in and auditioned for that part and I had the fortunate uh, news of being able to give it to her. And on the other side, you've got Holly who has to be drop-dead gorgeous so you might have somebody come in and you're like, no, you're not really voluptuously gorgeous enough to play this role. So, I mean, you've got a minefield on both sides. Like, you're plain, you're not gorgeous enough. So it seemed like it would be really a difficult play to cast, unless the actors have come in and said specifically, I want to play this role. This what, speaks to me. It's funny because it's like, uh, what you're commenting on is actually a lot more prevalent in theatre casting than you think it is. Like, a lot of the times, um, that whole, like, stereotype of, you know, who you cast and what role talks about, you know, how attractive they are. Um, but the great thing about this show is it like I mean it's it's calling it out in the casting and it's calling mm-hmm. it out in the characters. So it's it's if anything, casting of this show is a lot less mean about it. You know what I mean? Because it's not like oh no 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 that we didn't cast you this way because you're attractive. Like no, no no this one's like yeah that's kind of how it is. You know so um, it, that's true. It, it is kind of how it is, and yeah. that's what I hope people walk away from the show mm-hmm. knowing and understanding is that we as women in theater are a lot of the time cast based on our physical appearance, whether we have talent or not. And a lot of the time, there are beautiful actresses who take opportunities from less physically attractive actresses simply because of that reason. And and there's a lot of sexual harassment that happens behind closed doors as well that I hope to shed a little light on with this production. So that's excellent that you asked that question because you hit it right on the head, really. Mm-hmm. And and, yeah. and Winona is absolutely right. It's a lot more prevalent than people think. And when, when people think of theater people, oh, it's such a welcoming and warm environment. And it is a lot of the time. But when the, the higher you go on the food chain, the more bloodthirsty it can be mm-hmm. and the more or women in particular and people of color are exploited for those reasons. And the play definitely touches on that. Now you Absolutely. have often when you have plays at Stevens College because you're predominantly female there <laughs> and you, ca- <laughs> you cast a lot of the male roles are cast with women in mm-hmm. position mm-hmm. but in this play very specifically the men are supposed to be cast as women. So this mm-hmm. is really a play completely for women by women mm-hmm. involving women and that's part of your mission as the Warehouse Theatre. We focus on producing works uh, ho- uh, written by women and uh, for women, and that's uh, this season was very much that. Except this play, I mean, I would love- actually this would be a great time to change uh, to talk about Jane Martin a little bit because Jane Martin is actually not a woman. Well, we don't know that, do we? That's true. Bum, bum. Bum, bum. <laughs> there's there's theories about Jane Martin. That's true. <laughs> that I was going to get to that later yeah. on, but yeah, okay. Well, let's talk about Jane Martin. Then she is pseudonymous. Nobody knows who she is. She's been mm-hmm. uh, an existent prolific playwright for thirty years. And there are guesses about who she may be. Mm-hmm. Who do you think she is? John Jory. 
<laughs> that seems to be the most. And John Jory always speaks for her at events and and mm. goes in her stead when he does press release. I mean, not excuse me, press releases, but like press conferences yeah. and things like that. So and John Jory is the former Actors Theatre of Louisville's artistic director and founder of the Louisville Festival for New American Plays, mm-hmm. which has often been the place where Jane Martin's plays have oh, surprise, surprise, yeah. been <laughs> premiered. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. But we're just speculating here. Right. Yeah, we're just speculating. <laughs> I'm going to get a, a gag order in the mail tomorrow after John Jory listens to this on the radio. We just got a text, stop talking. <laughs> so in your program, I noticed last night, on the production team credits, you have somebody who is described as an intimacy designer. And there is a scene which involves kissing and some undressing. But who is the intimacy designer for? Is it for the cast or for the audience? Well, both. Being able to work with Kate Bussell, our intimacy designer, has been uh, has been a wonderful privilege for us because, like we were talking about in terms of sexual harassment in theater, there's no other profession in the world except for acting where you are expected to have sex in front of other people with this person you've never met before. And well, I guess the porn industry. Sorry, I don't know. I had to make that comment. <laughs> Keep but, going. Uh, but you're right. You know, it's still kind of theater. It's still theater. Yeah. I mean, that's film, but. There, except for acting, where where you're expected to have this level of intimacy with a person you've never interacted with in your life before, and a lot of the time, not only can that, I mean, not only will that lead to less than authentic acting a lot of the time, but more importantly than that, it has led to a lot of sexual harassment and things like that, especially in large Broadway theaters. And so having an intimacy designer not only allows us to choreograph the intimacy the way we might choreograph stage combat, right? Because it is just as physical and oftentimes more physical than stage combat. But it also allows the actors, or in this case, actresses, to have this intimate thing in an entirely neutral and desexualized environment where it becomes just anatomical language. Put your hands on the chest or on the leg or or things like that so that we don't have to worry about putting anybody in a situation that makes them uncomfortable. And in that way, we were very privileged because um, up until this year, we didn't have Kate as a resource. Mm-hmm. And, and now she'll be around, I think, for a while to yeah. help us out. But it's... It's uh, an industry, the intimacy design industry, right, is one that is growing because of this reason. And and with the rise of the Me Too movement, I think it's incredibly important Mm -hmm. that actresses feel comfortable and don't feel like they're being pressured sexually in ways that we would never ask them to be in any other industry. And it it can be a little uncomfortable for the audience, too. I mean, you're sitting in a room for people you don't know. It's like, you know, watching someone get undressed on TV when you're a child and your parents in the room. Like, oh, I'm really embarrassed. Um, And it it can be the same way if it isn't handled well Mm -hmm. so I I can see that uh, yeah Kate did a a good job so let's unpack the play within a play within a play (laughs) layering reading the script I kept having to kind of go back and reread passages to work out who was talking to who and what (laughs) layer of the play I was transitioning between Mm -hmm. and one of the layers is kind of the crumbling of the fourth wall which introduces the audience to Joby. So should we talk about who Joby is or do you prefer to leave her for the audience's disconcertment? Well, I'd love to disconcert the audience, but Mm -hmm. I will say that uh, with the introduction of Joby into the play, it allows the audience to reflect on how they perpetuate this vicious cycle of destroying theatre and build it back up again. So I, I won't 
uh, <laughs> spoil any information, but I think uh, Joby is such an important part of the show because it really makes the audience realize that they're just as important to the theater process as if they were characters themselves. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, she is the one who calls out the theater's habit of being slightly navel-gazing, and she asks them if they aren't all being just a little too reverential and precious and wonders if theater is indeed culturally relevant enough to be the subject of a play. She voices the idea that good old-fashioned stories have given way to interpretations, <laughs> which echoes the opening actor's comments that everybody hates deconstruction, uh, <laughs> which you hear a lot. I hear about deconstruction in all sorts of the arts. So how, how does that resonate with you as as purveyors of theatre? Do you love deconstruction? Do you think theatre is a little too navel-gazing? Do you think we are lacking good stories these days? Yeah, okay. Um, I got a tiptoe. Winona loves deconstruction. <laughs> Um, I love deconstructions and I have a lot of opinions on the theatre. But I think it's very important as theatre artists to constantly be double checking uh, with what's going on in the world and um, what people want to see and the path that theatre is going on in the future. And I think Joby does make a lot of comments that I definitely agree with um, in terms of like what type of theatre should be produced and, uh, and whether theatre is an art form that will make it through many years. So, uh, again, I'm tiptoeing around here. You don't think there will always be theatre? That is not what I said. <laughs> um, but to answer that question, no, I'm not sure. I think the way that theatre is going, we have no way of knowing, especially yeah. with the rise of television and film. Exactly. Um, and YouTube and things like that. There um, is, yeah, yeah, uh, there's like such a large amount of entertainment that is cheaper to get and easier to get. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I'm not just dis- disregarding the magic of theatre, but it's just, it, it's something that we have to pay attention to, to also, you know, audiences have short attention spans now because there's so much to distract them. Um, and watching a two-act show is, is asking a lot from someone nowadays. Mm-hmm. And the play does make the point that, you know, most of the audience are three months away from a nursing home or something. Yeah. That, you know, audiences exactly. are, are yeah. graying. Mm-hmm. And it's important, like, as I was saying, I think it's incredibly important as theatre artists, up-and-coming theatre artists, something that we have to pay attention to and we have to adapt if we want this art form to keep alive. Yeah, I don't think it's a, I don't think it's cynical to say that. And I don't think that it's cynical to dis, to agree with anything that Joby is saying because I think a lot of what she's saying is right. I mean, are we too self-reverential? Are mm-hmm. we too like do we think of ourselves as capital A artists most of the time? Yeah. But what at the end of the day is our contribution? What is our contribution? And and looking realistically at that instead of thinking that, oh, everybody loves theater. Everybody's coming to the plays. A lot of the times the plays we want to do are not the plays that our audience wants to see. Mm-hmm. And so ma- making that decision so that we can make enough money to do the plays we can do, these are the questions that mm-hmm. that we that we analyze in Anton and show business and questions that we have to ask ourselves every day if we want to stay relevant. So as, as young actors and directors starting your careers, does this play give you pause for thought about your chosen profession? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. I mean, ex- exactly like I was saying, you know, this doesn't make me feel cynical about being a theater artist. If anything, it makes me, it, it makes me feel a sense of responsibility. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So w- instead of going into the great beyond after May 11th, when I graduate from Stevens, <laughs> <clears throat> I don't feel as if I'm trekking into some unknown I, I or or doing work that nobody cares about because I do believe that people care about it because I care about it and they care about it and you care about it. 
I don't believe that I'm going into some horrible profession. I believe that there are things that are wrong with a profession I love, the same way there's something wrong with every profession, and it's my responsibility as someone young and someone going into the industry to change it. And do you feel that Stevens prepares you for that? Yeah. Are these classes that you take or discussions that I've had in classes about the future of theatre? It's not even just the classes. It's like the environment of Stevens. You know, we're very much in a position where it's kind of uh, like we are being trained to, you know, grow up and be strong women who uh, make change, you know? It, it's, yeah. it's definitely uh, something that I feel like I've developed since I've been at Stevens. Mm-hmm. And I think especially as a part of the warehouse, it... being student-run, that is a fantastic opportunity for a lot Mm -hmm. of us to get more of a real-world experience um, with the industry of theater as opposed to, you know, just going into rehearsal or going to class or anything like that. It's a completely different set of experiences that you will gain working um, in the warehouse. And I also think at Stevens, just what we were just talking about, deconstruction, things like that, I think, and this is a topic that's been brought up in, in my classes recently, and just in general, that young artists, we feel like we have a responsibility to almost deconstruct a lot of things to make it relevant in order to keep this momentum going of this industry that we are in. And at the warehouse with this mission that we have, especially for women, plays by women for women, it's a topic that a lot of us feel passionate about so that we have to really mold and change things to present a production or something to the community that will not only entertain, but something that can bring a community together. And I think that this industry Yes, I, I, there is that cynical part that a play like this will bring out where it's, you know, where is it going? Where is it taking us? I think that is a question that, as young artists, we are always pondering and questioning, you know, are we doing the right thing? Are we continuing on a path that will bring progress, that will bring change, that will bring inspiration? Um, so it's, it's a very fine line, but it's a line that I think a lot of us enjoy walking which is why we're at Stevens, I think. Yeah, and I I think also we are living in a post-Hamilton era. (laughs) And I'm not trying to give Hamilton more credit than it's worth, but I do legitimately think that with this show in particular, with Hamilton in particular, I mean, there's this resurgence of young theater audiences. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And now there are kids who who are in high school who have blogs all about theater and they talk about the characters and they read the plays together and, and they dedicate all their free time to theater even though they don't want to do it professionally. So is it over for the theater? I don't think so. I think um, and, and maybe I'm being a little bit too optimistic. I don't think that I am. But I think we should all be smiling and be happy because there's all of these young people who are flocking to the theater now. Our responsibility is to make it accessible to them. Right. Yeah. You can see the Warehouse Theatre's production of the hilarious Anton in show business tonight or tomorrow at 7.30, plus a final matinee on Sunday at 2. Tickets for the show are available by calling the box office on 573-876-7199 or online at stevens.edu forward slash box hyphen office. Or you can probably just turn up and buy them on the door. Thank you so much, Winona Wiley, Lauren Douglas, and Brooke Grinnell. I am sorry that this is our last time together, Winona. And also, Lynn Lauren, you're graduating too. But, Brooke, we're going to get together lots next year. Yes, so I'm yes, looking yes, forward yes. to talking to you <laughs> Absolutely. More. Thank, Thank you, you so much. much. Thank, Thank you. you. You're listening to Speaking of the Arts on 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia. And after a short break, I'll be back with Hannah Reeves from Sega Browdis Gallery to talk about their special spring exhibit, which opens tonight. 
Welcome back to Speaking of the Arts. In 1933, an experimental arts immersive school opened in Black Mountain, North Carolina. It was started by John Andrew Rice, a controversial teacher who was dissatisfied with the prevailing approach to higher education and set out to create a new type of school for artists with radical ideas about creativity, education and art practice. That same year in Germany, the Nazis were closing down the German art school called the Bauhaus, which they painted as a center of communist intellectualism for its staff to emigrate all over the world. Black Mountain College became a refuge for many artists fleeing Europe during the Second World War, and over the next quarter century, Black Mountain College would mould some of the most influential art creators and thinkers of the mid-20th century, becoming a melting pot for avant-garde art, music and poetry. Its graduates included artists such as Robert Rauschenberg, Cy Twombly, Elaine and Willem de Kooning, the choreographer Merce Cunningham, the inventor and architect Buckminster Fuller, the mathematician Max Dane, and the pioneer of electroacoustic music. Music, John Cage. But in 1957, saddled by debt and much diminished student enrolment, the college closed its doors. Despite its short life, the radical vision fostered at Black Mountain College sent ripples throughout the art world for decades to follow. And now, there is a new exhibit opening tonight at the Sega Browders Gallery, which seeks to show the expansive influence of the college. And I am delighted to welcome back to the show Sega Browders curator and art historian, Hannah Reeves. Welcome back, Hannah. Hi, thanks so much, Diana. So, gosh, where do we even start with <laughs> Black Mountain College? There's so much art and education history packed into its story. Mm-hmm. Maybe we should start with the principles upon which the school was founded. What made Black Mountain College a different kind of school? When I think about that, I think a lot about uh, the presence of Joseph Albers among the founding faculty. And so this, is, this isn't a complete answer, of you know, the entirety of the picture, um, but it's such an important piece um, that I like thinking about his influence in particular. Um, Albers was very focused on practice. Um, he wrote the textbook on color theory, and in his text, like one of the first things that he says, I was rereading it the other day, and it's so interesting to me, um, and it seems true, also, we all had to study this in art school. We all, everyone has to use this textbook now still. Um, he says you, go, you don't gain sensitivity to color except by using color. In other words, you have to practice the use. Um, you have to go through these exercises, and you have to make all of these studies in order to gain this understanding. And he's a painter, so he's talking about something really, really particular right there. But that idea of process and practice as just of central importance um, really seems like it was pervasive at Black Mountain College. And he was he was a big part. I mean, that may not have been as much the case had he not been there, which is, you know, another reason why he just he seems an important figure. I think that idea that you must execute practice. You must be making it constantly. You must be surrounded by and like immersed in um, making or creating. Um, it's not exactly the same as what ended up flowing out of some of the, the students there, which really you know, ended up being abstract expressionism. <laughs> um, Albert's ideas and those founding ideas, are they're different, but it seems like that focus on practice and immersion 
kind of maybe had to be there in order for people to think about process, showing process in the work and validating process um, by actually showing you their mark making and doing this more expressive work. That's the next generation's version of it. So it just seems immensely important that the foundations were there. And it was, I mean, it's a very isolated place. And so they were very immersed. They weren't really influenced by what was going on outside in the world. And there was, there was no competitive grading. There was no right. curricula. So they, students set their own agendas. They decided mm-hmm. what they were going to do. Um, they, it was kind of like a commune. Right? Yeah, it was kind of a commune. And their learning was very guided by their own interest. Um, there's a student in the documentary talks about how we weren't actually taught um, a lot of particular art practices or techniques. We weren't being taught in that way. Um, we were taught to find, to pursue what interests us and to bring out what we already had in some way. Um, but it was really student-guided. And a lot of the students also talk about that as immensely motivating to them, like because there was, there was so much responsibility um, Someone said, you, well, you didn't have to go to class, but why, you know, why wouldn't you? Yeah, it just wasn't, it wasn't um, a one-size-fits-all kind of curriculum. And like you said, it, uh, you mentioned subject matter and grades and ranking. It was really important that there weren't these um, subject matter divisions. If you think about the college experience that most of us had, which is, you know, now a little bit informed by the revolutionary, you know, type of educational work that happened at Black Mountain. But especially at the time, the rest of universities, when you choose a major, it kind of precludes your understanding some other things. Like you're choosing against something when you choose a major. And those divisions also create competition. And they create competition in a university for for funding and for like positions and for <laughs> students and for, you know. And so the absence of that really does create a different kind of community, I think. I mean, and it isn't only artists. Like I said, there were engineers and mathematicians, yeah. philosophers. So there was all sorts of people that, that had an influence in the 20th century that had had this very loosely structured educational uh, opportunity. So Joseph and Annie Albers were two of the European emigres that had, that had mm-hmm. fled from Germany, and they had been at the Bauhaus. So how did the principles of the Bauhaus school, how did they align with those of Black Mountain College? What did they bring with them from Europe? Well, the Bauhaus, in just a really general sense, was was flying in the face of traditional education in Germany. So there's there's a sense in which it was just kind of just revolutionizing education also. And that's really general. But it was integrating subjects. And that was part of what made it um, the curriculum new. Not in the same way, not in exactly the same way, and it's not described in the same way. But um, at the Bauhaus, design and craft and art making are so closely related and function, like making things that are functional, um, is so closely tied to design, which is very tied to composition, which is connected with painting. And all of those are really integrated in a way that actually elevates some of the areas of art making that weren't even maybe considered art making before that. Um, Now, as artists, you know, living here and now, you know, having gone through art school in the last, you know, decade or two, um, we really do kind of have open to us almost anything as 
possible materials, a possible subject matter. There's really a way in which the path was paved. And in terms of drawing on traditional craft and then like integrating design and craft ideas into fine art, that comes from the Bauhaus, I think. So, I mean, to go back to your question, there is an idea that it's, it's, it's expansive. There's an expansive notion of what art can be and what art education can be that is super compatible with what's happening at Black Mountain. And I have to think that had to be why the Albers came directly to Black Mountain. A lot of Bauhaus designers and artists went to New York and, you know, and took a couple steps first, but that had to be a draw for them. Reading about Black Mountain College and the idea of integration of the arts, it did remind me of, you know, Locust Arts Expression yeah. School here <laughs> in Columbia, too. which, you know, all <laughs> of the classes are taught through the, the prism of art, which mm-hmm. I thought was kind of interesting. So tell us a bit more about Joseph Albers and what his influence was on the college specifically. Oh, so many of his students, which, by the way, you know, his students are Robert Rauschenberg and John Chamberlain and like, you know, these these major, major names in art history. Um, but so many of his students talk about um, the way that his push to for them to practice really changed, made them into artists, like really actually made them into artists um, and kind of changed their lives thereafter. And so the descriptions of it are just pretty great that was um there was a former student who said um that he would go through all of these exercises because you just had to execute so many studies and then you could make something pristine like you just could not skip the practice if you were studying with albers so you do all these studies and then he'd make something that he thought was final the student and then albers would say it's a good start <laughs> like, and in his like german accent and that was kind of like the highest praise that you could get from him as a professor that's a good start because you, there was always more practice to be done. And then think about Albers making that if people do, you know, if you're not familiar and you Google him, you, what you will find in images are squares. He makes these paintings that remove subject matter. They actually, a lot of them don't even even like rely on line or boundary. They just deal in shape and mostly in color. And so he revisits the square and utilizes the square to visually talk about color for like six decades. Right, his whole life you know? pretty much, right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so he kept practicing. He practiced what he preached. <laughs> now, even though there was no competitive grading, I mean, I read somewhere that uh, Rauschenberg did not get on well with Albers. Albers was very, very critical. So even though there was no competitive grading, there was still a lot of criticism being handed out. But Rauschenberg oh, said, yeah. you know, he, he didn't think of Albers as a bad teacher, that, it, you know, all his life he, he learned from that experience. Yeah. I mean, art making is inherently vulnerable. So th- that's probably going to be true at any version of an art school, in my opinion, that, you know, you make yourself vulnerable when you when you make something. And to have that critiqued is always going to feel rough sometimes. <laughs> so I kind of hear that in Rauschenberg's talk of the really difficult critiques. There was some like ideological stuff that was happening, though, because Rauschenberg was embracing and he was one of the early like, you know, modernist embracer or postmodern, I guess, um, embracers of chance. And Albers hated that because he wanted planning and, you know, structure and all of this practice behind and leading up to the pristine, you know, perfectly planned example. And Rauschenberg was really experimenting with, like, throwing scraps of paper onto the canvas because the way that they landed would would then involve chance and maybe some other energy that he couldn't get through pure composition. 
And um, that was not that was not an Albers. <laughs> no, that idea. is kind of interesting when you look. I mean, Albers is so neat and tidy. It's so geometrically mm. perfect. And it, I, I like Albers' work because I like things that lay down very neatly yeah. on the page. So <laughs> I struggle hugely with people like Motherwell and Rauschenberg and the person whose work. I will leave a gallery if I see a Cy Twombly work. <laughs> I oh, no. detest Cy Twombly's work. I'm sure he was a very nice man, but um, I cannot stand his yeah. work. It just, it evokes such irritation in me. There's a relinquishment of control that those artists are accessing that it, I can see why it could be really uncomfortable. Um, if, especially if you, if you like order and you want control you know you want to control your surroundings so how did albers this super precise german almost like an engineering level of of exact how did he create this generation of people who really responded to chance and to yeah i don't know that loose he gesture. did i do think that he incur that his encouragement of practice meant that they acknowledged um, process as important, like I was saying earlier. Um, but it took new minds to like make the next step. And it probably took the entire environment of Black Mountain College. That immersion, like the interaction just with your surroundings, the fact of like maintaining the building and the grounds, seeing everyone that you live and study with all the time and making things with them all the time and having essentially no private time. You know, and the dance pieces and some of the first performative art happened you know, on the grounds there. So there's something about that entire environment, which also it may be the isolation is part of that, too. It's just this little dot on the map, the, this beautiful, you know, mountainous landscape. And maybe that haven, it, you know, it's it, maybe it took all of that for people to feel that they could experiment freely. It was there for 24 years, and a lot of the people mm -hmm. we talk about seem to have been very active in the late 40s, early 50s, kind of just really before it closed down. Mm -hmm. Rauschenberg, Motherwell, John Cage, mm -hmm. and they were all there at the same time, kind of 48, 52. Mm -hmm. Were there people who came earlier who we don't hear that much about? Was it, was it that later period that produced this expansive influence of artists and oh, thinkers? That's a good question. I'm not sure that I know the answer. I'm, I'm not... Because... You know, going through the biographies of the 12 artists that are in the show that we've been researching, you know, we've been dating like what, you know, whether they were a student or faculty and then what years they were there. And it does kind of a lot of the activity, is, at least that we focus on, does kind of center around like the mid and late 40s. Of course, the Albers were there um, from the beginning, but I'm not sure that I know the answer. The roster is actually pretty large. I mean, it was a small school, but among the faculty, like we from the museum, we obtained the entire roster of like all the faculty that ever taught there and then all the students that ever went there. And so that's like a thousand people. So undoubtedly there's, <laughs> there's someone, someone I've never heard of. Yeah. Don't know. Yeah. <laughs> so let's zoom in a little and talk about what you have on display at the Sega Bradis Gallery. Well, so there are 12 artists in the show. The way that we went about curating it was to narrow down that big set of a thousand people or so to students of note because we did want recognizable names because we did want, well, we wanted to be able to find biographical information and we wanted to be able to find artwork. So that, that's part of it to so the most prolific students sometimes are some of the better known students. And then um, and then we looked for all of the faculty. And we basically just then with that narrowed down roster began scouring the country <laughs> to try to find the right pieces. We knew that we wanted to create an exhibit that had this kind of digs into like the nitty gritty, maybe a little too, bit too much too early. But we wanted 
the work to be accessible in the way that our like our monthly exhibits or the Cuban exhibit a year ago was as compared to our December Masters exhibit, which features these masterpieces that most people here wouldn't buy. Um, and we wanted to choose works for this exhibit that are by mid-century masters, but could go home with Midwesterners, you know, or with people that we know who come into the gallery all the time. So we were looking actually for particular pieces. And once we found dealers that carried the artists on the roster that we'd put together, we picked out pieces that we thought represented the, like what people would expect to see if they know Joseph Albers, you need to see a mitered square and like an homage to the square. And we, we also wanted to span the the long careers of the artists that we chose and not actually just focus on what was made, you know, in the 40s, because part of the story that we're telling is that the influence really goes outward from this little point on the map and this little hunk of time into a level of influence that almost can't even be measured. Because these people influenced their own students and the people around them. They influenced how people thought about art. After they left, you know, the abstract expressionists completely, like, revolutionized abstraction in the U.S. And then the next generation is influenced by a wider set of people so that it just becomes such a huge picture of American, now contemporary art. We wanted to follow their careers into, in, in some cases, we have a Jacob Lawrence piece that's from 1996. I think that's the youngest piece in the show. So the selections are, to me, they feel very diverse. I did have a client say the other day, he said, to you, they feel diverse. <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah. like they're all, <laughs> they're all abstract works. Um, the Jacob Lawrence pieces, and like there are a few pieces that involve representation, but they're still very abstract. So there's a very abstract image of a chair or of a coachman, you know, but they are all abstract works. To me, it feels very, very diverse. And, you know, because these artists really each, made major steps and um, kind of revolutionary moves. And so that means that their work looks, to me, looks very, very different. <laughs> I think people will find a variety. They're going to find work from 12 different artists and from several decades. But the connecting point is, again, this little, this little spot on the map, you know, for 24 years, this highly influential institution and environment that really changed the way that I, it affected the way that we think about art education now in a wider sense, and it affected the way that we think about art and define art. How did you acquire these works? I mean, you said you scoured the country. <laughs> so they all belong belong to other galleries, in effect. Um, some of them do. Some of them we acquired so that we could bring them. because, So, for example, um, the Joseph Albers pieces, most of the Joseph Albers pieces that are there, it was so essential to have his work and to have a particular vein of his work that we acquired those early on, so we knew we had this like anchor for the show. But we really, we forged relationships with dealers and that was interesting we have you know there are several dealers we work with for the master's exhibit when you're not representing a living artist you know you can't just go to their studio and obviously um so those estates are in the hands of dealers who represent them and can lend them out and can let us sell them you know um but we did forge relationships with three new dealers and we also borrowed three pieces from landmark bank for this show because they have a wonderful permanent collection that includes a black mountain artist and they lent us some. <laughs> so it feels a little bit like, is this kind of a prequel to the ABEX show that you had in December, or is it contemporaneous with that ABEX movement? Well, Black Mountain College probably predates it a little bit, but 
they have a lot in common. And when we were talking about the advent of abstract expressionism, we kind of talked about those factors in the U.S. that fed into that, which and and a lot of those are the same factors that affected um, Black Mountain College, like people were it was hard to be an artist in Europe because the Nazis were there. Um, you know, so a lot of people fled during World War II and ended up in the U.S. American artists had just gone through this era of regionalism and like painting murals for the WPA. They also met a lot of they met each other that way. So maybe that was part of the connection and how they would hear about something like that. So a lot of those bringing to, that bringing together those factors probably coincide with ABEX. Like many people, I struggle like as I said, with some of this work, there there are a lot of mid-century works which, to me, feel like they're straight out of casting for the king's new clothes. Like everybody <laughs> is talking about them and no one is saying, actually, that's just not very good. So, um, you know, and my example of is the, the de Kooning chair, mm-hmm. which is valued at $400,000. <clears> to me, it's just a piece of bad art. <laughs> but, you know, artists want to evoke a response and it doesn't mm-hmm. have to necessarily be good. So it works, Mm-hmm. It evokes a response in me. It isn't a good response, but that maybe mm-hmm. it's not the artist's responsibility to make me feel good. But is it a fair <laughs> question to ask? Mm-hmm. What did the artist want me to feel when oh. I look at that work? Sure. Is it their job mm. to think about that or not? You know, I think we do that now to artists. And that was a lot of my grad school experience. Like, what what do you intend? And then I can tell you whether you were successful. So we do that now. And it seems it, it makes sense to say, like, well, how do I know whether the artist was successful if I don't know what they what they set out to tell me or to show me? I don't think that the approach was quite that way in the mid-century and I think the abstract expressionist especially would have kind of would have pushed against that and that idea that um they have a a preconceived idea of what you take away because a lot of it is almost cathartic or it like it comes from them in such a kind of a raw pure state that it might be argued that it can't be filtered and then still be the same thing that still be expressive in the same way I mean there's no way that de Kooning could have imagined that one day this little <laughs> chair that he painted is going to be worth $400,000 that isn't in his yeah. mind at the time that those paintings are happening so what no surely not I like thinking about that <laughs> that's interesting <laughs> And, and, you know, as with so much of art appreciation, you really need to know what went before Mm -hmm. to appreciate why something is the way it is. So what were these artists in particular, what were they kind of rebelling against? The need for subject matter is like a short answer. The need to, well, and then like an earlier generation is, you know, you still have subject matter, but it's no longer religious subject matter. There are like iterations of this throughout art history, I guess is what I mean to say. Um, and so somebody has to like push outside of um, what art can be and be about. But the really there there is a really big move away from recognizable subject matter. Now de Kooning still has sub- and there there are subject matter in this show um, that are abstracted, but it's really done in a, it, it makes a chair almost unrecognizable. <laughs> You know, it's very, very abstracted because it seems like it is more about expression um, than about the subject. That's not always, that's not true for every artist in this show. But um, thinking about the really expressive work and abstract expressionism especially, there's no longer a need for subject matter. 
and there's maybe not a need to consider what the person takes away and you're not communicating in a way that's like writing and you wrote and now they read your book from left to right and you know that that's that they read the page from left to right, you know, there's not all of the the presumption that goes into like a more verbal or verbally filtered communication. And it is, at least for a while, it's about the artist to the artist. And like, it's, it's an expression and a process that's just theirs. And they're saying, I say that's important because I'm the artist. Right. <laughs> so what work speaks to you the most in the show? That's a hard question because it changes shape in my mind so much as we install it and you see it you know as you're unpackaging and there are things that feel so exciting to pull out you know to, to just hold a de Kooning, you know to like touch the Ruth Asawa as you um, as you pull it out of the box like there's there's like that level and then there's like seeing like the composition of the entirety of the exhibit come together affects me but a lot of people ask me that we had a, a preview party with kind of friends of the art world last night and I arrived only after having been asked a lot of times and not being able to answer. I think it's really exciting to me to have Annie Albers work and to have Ruth Asawa's work in the gallery because they are both part of my artistic ancestry. And I kind of, you know, thought through how had Annie not come to Black Mountain College and like legitimized weaving and also she was relegated to weaving at the Bauhaus because she was a woman and she it was kind of like sticking it to everyone who was who was relegating her to really use weaving like painting and to elevate it to you know to, in order to think about composition and make it into fine art and had she not done that at Black Mountain you know maybe Ruth Asawa wouldn't have taken on these uh, netting materials and utilize traditional methods to make this extremely expressive conceptual sculpture. But then also, Ruth Asawa is an influence of my mentor, Joe Staley, who's a heavy influence on me. And so my work doesn't look anything like Annie Albers, but she's my ancestor, right. you know, and uh, that's almost kind of emotional to me. But I also, I don't think I'm unique. I think that most of the artists in this city probably have an ancestor in that room. Mm. Like that's how important the point of Black Mountain College was. is In the way that you've curated it, is there a journey? Have you, is it laid out in a way that tells a story? Not exactly, no. Um, I do have statements like on the wall throughout the room and those are kind of lay at, like dispersed in a way that hopefully makes sense to gain that information there in the room. And I do picture people coming in and going to the left when they come in the front door, but that's just because I like <laughs> laid it out and kind of think of it that way. Um, no, I really tried to balance and disperse work by artist when that did it justice and to group, you know, there's a pair of Albers that are highly related and they needed to be next to each other um, when that makes sense. I also tried, I did some work to make sure that people understood kind of the intimacy and the uh, how cool it is basically to have unframed works on paper up on the wall as opposed to on a table or in a flat file. Yeah, I like how you did that. You painted the wall different colors behind like a square of yellow and then yeah. you have a work in the center of it. That was, I think that's beautifully displayed. I really like how that came out too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thanks. 
we have a huge amount of time left and I have a million questions left to ask you. <laughs> Is there anything else you want to add about the show? What other events do you have coming up? You have the opening tonight, the official opening. Yeah, opening tonight is from 6 to 9. We do Slow Art Saturday every first Saturday. This one will be special. We'll do a, a full guided tour of the exhibit. This will be the only public group tour. Um, people can arrange for us to walk through the exhibit anytime just by calling me at the gallery. It's 442 um, And we can do, we can do private tours or small groups, um, but the only big scheduled group tour will be at 11.30 a.m. on Saturday. We serve complimentary Tomorrow. Bloody Marys. Oh, it is Friday. Yeah. <laughs> yes, we, Tomorrow we morning. established that. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, we're doing... Um, we're also co-hosting with Top 10 Wines a rosé tasting on the 20th, and you have to get tickets for that through Top 10 Wines, but that's going to be really neat, too. On Black Mountain, the Bauhaus Legacy in America opens tonight from 6 to 9 p.m. at Sega Braudis and will be on display in their new expanded gallery space through April the 27th. The gallery is open at 11 a.m. to 6 p.m. from Tuesday through Saturday and tomorrow morning, as Hannah just said, she'll be giving a curator's talk about the show at 11.30 during their regular Slow Art Saturday event. You can find out more at segabraudisgallery.com. Hannah, as always, it is a pleasure and an education chatting oh, with you. Thank you so much. Same. Thank you. <laughs> You are listening to Speaking of the Arts, and before we hand the airwaves over to Terry Gross and Fresh Air, let's take a whistle-stop tour of some of the arts events that are going to be vying for your attention over the next seven days. Hold on to your hats as it is an action-packed weekend of arts events, and there are some difficult choices to be made. Tonight and tomorrow, the Missouri Contemporary Ballet and the Choral Arts Alliance of Missouri team up to present Carmina Burana at the Missouri Theatre. The performance starts at 7 and tickets start at $28. At the Columbia Entertainment Company, you can can see the British farce Noises Off at 7.30 tonight and tomorrow, also with a 2pm matinee on Sunday, and tickets for that show are $14. At the Stevens College Warehouse Theatre, you can see the comedy Anton in Show Business tonight or tomorrow at 7.30, or a 2pm matinee on Sunday, and tickets are $8. Meanwhile, at the Stevens College Mecklenburg Theatre, Tripp's Children's Theatre is presenting How I Became a Pirate at 7pm tonight, and there's a 2pm matinee tomorrow, and tickets for that are 12 for adults and 7 for children. At Studio 4 on Hit Street, the Mizzou New Play Series runs all weekend with performances tonight, tomorrow and Sunday evening plus matinees on Saturday and Sunday. Each performance features different works so what you see depends on when you go. Tonight is also first Friday in the North Village Arts District which includes the grand opening of the Sega Browdis Gallery Extension as well as the opening night for their special spring exhibit on Black Mountain, the Bauhaus Legacy in America plus there's live music at Rose Park, Fretboard Coffee and Artlandish Gallery. In Jefferson City, Jesus Christ Superstar is on at Capital City Productions. The dinner theatre doors open at 6 tonight and tomorrow and there's also a Saturday matinee. And the 43rd annual recital of the Lincoln University Dance Troupe is on at the Richardson Fine Arts Centre in Jefferson City. That's tonight and tomorrow at 8.15 with a 2.15 matinee on Sunday. Tomorrow morning, as we just said, there's another chance to take in the new Sega Browdis Gallery uh, Black Mountain College exhibit with a guided curator's tour at 11.30. On Saturday evening, Talking Horse Theatre is holding its annual Broadway Fools fundraiser with food by Room 38 and a night of entertainment from a host of local singers and comedy courtesy of the Stable Boys Improv Troupe. Tickets are $25 for this one night only spectacular. The Boone Slick Cordbusters annual spring show is at First Baptist Church Saturday at 7 with headliners Instant Classic who were the Barbershop Harmony Society's 2015 International Quartet Champions. Also featured at the Stevens College Velvet Tones and Kansas City Youth Quartet Barbecue. Tickets are $10 
podcast and you can buy those on the door. And at the Blue Note on Saturday night, Interstellar Overdrive is playing The Wall, a Pink Floyd tribute. That show starts at nine. Tuesday evening, novelist Romalyn Tillman drops into Skylark Bookshop to discuss her new novel, To the Stars Through Difficulties, a contemporary story set in Kansas of women changing the world. And at Whitmore Recital Hall, the Brad Meldow trio perform as part of the We Always Swing, Swing Jazz series, and you can see them at seven. Wednesday evening, Skylark Bookshop presents readings by two poets, Cassie Donish and Stacey Lynn Brown. This is a free event open to all and will run from 6 till 7.30. The new Como Comedy Club kicks off on Wednesday evening with two performances by Drew Lynch, who fans of America's Got Talent might recall from season 10 of the show. Drew's two performances start at 7 and 9.30 and tickets are $20. And on Thursday, the Como Comedy Club is back again with two performances by another alum of America's Got Talent, this time Preacher Lawson from season 12, who also placed fifth overall for the America's Got Talent, the champion show which aired in January this year. His shows are at 7 and 9.30 and tickets are $22. At William Wood's main stage, William Wood's University's main stage theatre next Thursday, it is opening night for their children's play, Sir Slob and the Princess. That evening show starts at 7.30 and continues next weekend. At Cafe Berlin, this month's One Mic Poetry Evening starts at 7pm next Thursday. And finally, fans of the Netflix series Queer Eye should hasten to Jesse Hall next Thursday for an evening in conversation with the show's star and food and beverage connoisseur Antony Porofsky. The evening starts at 7 and tickets are $10. You have been listening to Speaking of the Arts on 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia with me, Diana Moxham, and my good friend and sound engineer, Mike Hagan. We'll be back next week with more news, views and interviews on the arts in mid-Missouri. Stay arty, Columbia. Columbia.